Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today it is my pleasure to bring you this discussion I had with David Reedfeld. Dave's worked in local church ministry for over 30 years and is senior minister at Dapto Anglican Church. He's also an author, actually, recently publishing a fantastic volume, Being Christian After Christendom. That's where he examines the cultural shifts that have taken place in the West and how we, as God's people, navigate life in this age. Dave's actually been extremely generous, and what he's done is given you a discount code to receive 40% off his book. Keep an ear out for that code in the discussion. Now, Dave does a really good job of highlighting not only the cultural changes we see, but showing us where they came from, and showing us how we can leverage our understanding of these to inform our classroom practice as teachers. Now, before we get stuck into this, I'm giving a keynote on AI and education at the CEN Tasmania State Conference. As I prepare for that, I've been coming across great articles and resources. For a month or two, I've been including those resources in a weekly email called the AI for Teachers Weekly Digest. If you want to find out more about that, I'll put a link in the show notes too. Now know that before David and I hit record, we prayed for you. We prayed that you would not only read and know God's word, but that you would read and know God's world. And that by knowing the world, we would be better equipped to be God's ambassadors to our schools, our families, and our communities. Well, David Reedfeld, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Now, we are here on the campus of Calvin Secondary School. From what I understand, this geographical area has somewhat of a personal importance to you. Is that about right? Indeed. I used to live on the very street about... 50 metres that way, and I would drive past this school on my way to uni, on my way to basketball. My brother and sister attended this school. We moved to Tassie. Um, When I was in year 12, at that time, Calvin didn't have year 12, so I went to Hobart Matric. But uh, yeah, this this place feels like being back home. That's excellent. I, I myself grew up in Kingston, just up the road. I moved to the northern suburbs, so I didn't quite move as far away as you have. Where are you living these days? Uh, I'm in Wollongong these days. In Wollongong. So I just moved up to the northern suburbs of Hobart. But I tell you what, coming back felt so right. There's just something about the geographical uh, familiarity of a place. Are you enjoying, I mean, you're just here for a, a fairly brief flyover, is that right? Yeah, I'm down in Tassie for a week. Um, and uh, I was coming over the bridge and I saw Mount Wellington. Um, And my heart skipped a beat. It's a beautiful place. It's good for the soul to be down here. I'm absolutely convinced. Now, tell us what brings you to Tasmania, David? Yeah, so I've just um, finished a book uh, and I'm on something of a book launch speaking tour. Um, So I work uh, partially for an Anglican church, partially for city to city. uh, And we have some um, investment here in Tasmania with uh, the Anglican diocese. Uh, And so I'll be speaking Um, to some Calvin parents, to some Calvin teachers today. I'll be speaking at an Anglican church tomorrow. And then uh, I'll be speaking in Launceston um, at Lagana Christian Church later this week. Fantastic. Well, that is quite the schedule. Now, before we get into the guts of your book, tell me this. I'm fascinated with writing, although I don't get much time to do it. I've got a couple of young boys and I'm teaching and whatnot. I'm fascinated by writing. Some authors say that book it gave me some species of legitimate trauma, like trying to get that thing out. And other people say, well, that was just sort of all the thoughts I've been thinking for a decade or so just coalesced and it fell out of me really easily. I was able to write that book with ease. How did you go writing your book? Yeah, look, it took me um, maybe four years to write. Um, and I actually had a publisher signed up at the start. 
Um, I finished it off in COVID and I contacted the publisher and I said, I'm ready to publish. And they said, we pivoted in COVID. We're not publishing your line of book anymore. <laughs> so I had to chase a second and then eventually a third publisher to get it published. It was a mountain. Um, like, I'm glad it's over. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, parts of it came out of, out of me naturally, but other parts, um, I was just kind of struggling to get complex ideas as simple and accessible as possible. And you're a pastor by trade, which is notoriously quite an intellectually involved gig. I mean, you've got the pastoral situations, that, but you're also preaching every week. And depending how you go, you're doing a lot of reading and writing for that too. Where did you find the time to piece this together? Yeah, I would, I would get up at like uh, five o'clock in the morning <laughs> and I'd say to myself, am I going running today or cycling or am I riding? Um, and so some days I would sit there and write a chapter or a half a chapter or as much as I could pump out. Uh, yeah, and then maybe 7 o'clock, 7.30, the rest of my household would get up um, and I'd um, hit save and I'd get on with the rest of my day. I can respect that. There comes a point in your life where the only way to get more time is to either stay up later or get up earlier. So it sounds like you've hit that. Now, your book is entitled Being Christian After Christendom. That's a pretty evocative title. It gives us a fair bit of information about the book. But could you briefly speak to the contents of your book? What are you trying to what kind of message are you trying to uh, portray or, or give us here with this book? Yeah, so I think Christians, whether they're in the Christian school movement or in the church or in the parachurch organisation, we've all got this intuitive sense that something radical has changed in the last 20 odd years, right? Um, and it's not just, uh, say, uh, sexual ethics or identity politics. There's all sorts of dimensions. Like youth ministries are smaller than what they used to be. There's less visitors at church. The reputation of the church in public is that we're seen as judgmental bullies. Uh, we don't get to speak in certain forums. And yet people are happy to come to our schools and nursing homes. Mm. Um, so there's kind of some, some confusing mixed messages out there. Um, and there's some deep underlying assumptions below the surface level phenomena. Uh, and so what I've actually tried to do is to slow down and explain to people, this is actually how Christianity fitted and worked in say the 1960s and before, and this is what's happening now. And I've tried to make some kind of codified lists because I think it's, it's a bit nebulous. So I've tried to make it concrete and simple and understandable so that you can kind of get some handles on what's actually happening. There's a great Tolkien quote from I think the first book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where he talks about something has changed. You can feel it in the air. You can feel it in the earth. But there's been a seismic change that's happened. And that's what you're speaking to right there. So many Christians feel that as well. And they feel like they've had this big game run on them where they were the morally upstanding, virtuous citizen. They were well recognized by their friends as someone who had a great level of moral enthusiasm. They were keen to do the right thing. But they've gone from being um, that virtuous citizen to being uh, perhaps morally neutral. And even then, moving along even further, they've become someone who is derided for being, as you said, judgmental or somewhat uh, embracing certain vices um, themselves. So they've gone from being, in the eyes of the world, fairly well regarded to being disregarded and regarded of quite a lower state. Now tell us, what, what is driving that? We all feel it. Many people feel it. What, what is the engine that's actually driving that change we see in our society? So let's begin with kind of some of the assumptions of Christendom and just make them explicit. 
Um, Christendom was a world where uh, God created and his order was somehow present in creation and we could know what was moral. Um, uh, history had a direction, a purpose. It was moving back towards God. God was watching it all. God was somehow um, the, the judge. One day he would hold everybody to account. Uh, Jesus was the example of how best to live life well. Um, and you had to somehow emulate him. Um, everyone believed that. The Christians believed that you couldn't get to this afterlife by being good. You actually had to uh, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. But everyone had roughly the same assumptions. Now, let's quickly go through a few of those. We now live in a self-centered universe, not a God-centered universe. Um, so I get to make decisions referenced around me. Um, and what I find pleasurable and meaningful and helps me become my best version of myself. Morality used to be around what God sewed into the fabric of the universe and made right or wrong. Now it's my moral intuition. Um, it's kind of me listening to my feeling. And so long as I don't do any harm to anybody else, uh, I can't kind of, um, you know, Im impose or enforce my will on others. And that's one of the places where Christians come unstuck. We have a moral objectivity. Um, we believe we're speaking on behalf of God, but uh, the outside world hears us using God as a power play to control and to manipulate and to try and squash other people's freedom. And, and we're seen as thinking that people are basically bad and somehow we've got a better moral framework for them to live, whereas now people are basically good uh, and, and if you just let them thrive and flourish and become them best selves, that's their best opportunity to kind of um, self-actualize into a good person. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we fly in the face of some of the, the new core values of post-Christendom. They sit in tension with the way that we have expressed the Christian faith through the period of Christendom. You mentioned in your book, actually, that Rousseau was one of the forefathers of this post-Christian worldview. So in your book, you talk about the Christian worldview and then the post-Christian worldview, the worldview we get after society has basically said, no, we're actually done with the Christian worldview. Um, and Rousseau was interesting in that he said, well, we all start basically good. Now, what we see right away is that's a photo negative of the Christian worldview, isn't it? We all start basically good and it's society's constraints and programs and designs that turn us bad, right? We're, we're born good and we're made bad by society. And it's interesting, I was hearing a, a public intellectual the other day, they said, you know, they were being asked, who is the most corrosive person in the West? You know, is it Nicki Minaj and Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus, all those people promoting depravity? And he goes, no way. It's Rousseau. It all went bad at Rousseau um, because that's where these alien worldviews have been buried in seed form. And what we're seeing now is their emergence it's sort of as, the, as they grow and, and are spread out. You do a lot of talking about the idea of worldview. And in the Christian schooling movement, that's something we're pretty well across. We've been talking about that for decades and decades Tell me, if you had to sum up the idea of a worldview to someone who'd never heard it before, how would you explain that concept? So uh, in day-to-day -day life, we make all sorts of decisions and there's things that we're conscious of and they're in the public debate and the things that are in the public debate at the moment are kind of like um, your sexuality or, or your identity. 
But below those surface phenomena that we kind of all get wrapped up in are some underlying values and below that some underlying beliefs. Uh, and so the values that are most esteemed at the moment are things like um, tolerance, um, love as respect, um, do no harm, give the other person freedom to self-actualize, become them best selves. Um, those values make it a little bit to the surface, but by and large, they're unspoken. The beliefs are even more subversive. Mm. They're even more, um, a technical word here is they're, they're kind of more tacit. Okay. We, we just don't, um, we never actually name them up. But for instance, the belief that I'm an expert on me, mm. right? Um, th that's a fundamental belief. And... Um, we want to actually draw out that belief and then actually have a discussion at that level, not just at the level of the phenomena on the surface. Because I think we're on a hiding to nothing if all the assumptions are against us and pointing to the obvious conclusions of, well, of course, if a person feels like there's no more point to the life and, and they're old, you know, and they want to take their own, who are we to tell them they can't, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. All the assumptions drive you to that conclusion so a worldview is all these unspoken assumptions of beliefs and values that express themselves in particular behaviours. The Christian Education Podcast is brought to you by Teaching in Tassie. At Christian Education National Schools in Tassie, you can make a difference. You have the freedom to express your faith and values, of course with Jesus right at the centre. Tasmania's beautiful environment has space to breathe. We have amazing food and wine, wilderness to explore. There's an adventure right on your doorstep. There are endless opportunities. I've got to tell you, it's almost perfect. To sign up or learn more, visit teachingintassie.com.au and you'll be the first to know when there's a career available. Who knows? It may just have your name on it. Let's get back to the discussion. And we're in some ways up against it in the West. I've heard it described like this. You talk to a Muslim and they go, yep, this is my way of understanding the world and you have your way. You talk to a Tibetan monk and they go, yep, this is my way of understanding the world, you have your way. You talk to a modern Western secular person, they don't think they have a way of understanding the world. They think that just is the world. They, they don't understand they're looking through a set of lenses. Would you say that that's an accurate way of understanding things that we in the West have through our modern secular age almost become blind to the fact that we are actually still viewing the world through a theological or theoretical framework. Yeah, I think um, I'd agree with that and I want to nuance it only slightly. We're living through um, a fast changing uh, moment of worldview transition and your average person can see two worldviews. They can see the Christendom worldview, which is now the bad guy. Um, and they look at that as judgmental, as power hungry, as um, bullish, as opinionated, as moralistic. And that's all bad. And so if we're not that, then there's only one other option, and that's this worldview of post-Christendom, which is tolerant and loving and accepting and um, gives people freedom to express and become them best selves. Uh, and so I think your average person is kind of like, there's sort of only two options, and one's clearly bad. We're not going there. We're not going back to all of those mistakes, you know, that was so racist. That was the reason why... Um, 
people of uh, divergent sexualities felt persecuted and, and, you know, committed suicide or depressed or what, you know, when we don't want to go back there. So the only other option is this. But what you're saying is actually there's lots of other options. Uh, and, and I try and express some of those in my book to give us some lenses so that we can have conversations about these topics, because really one set of lenses means you can't see any lenses. That's what you're saying. Uh, and, and two sets of lenses where one is clearly the bad guy, it, it, it's just um, unsophisticated and unhelpful. Let's have a think now about how Christians engage with culture, because whether we're talking about churches or whether we're talking about schools, both institutions are dealing flat out all the time with the culture in their area. You've often heard it said, I'm sure, that when uh, whether you're a pastor or perhaps even a school teacher, you need to understand the scripture, of course, you need to be able to read the scriptures, but you also need to be able to read the culture. And if you read the scriptures really well, but don't necessarily read the culture accurately, you can end up in all sorts of muddles. You're answering questions no one is asking. A classic example of this is um, I, was, I was trying to make my way through Calvin's Institutes last summer. I had a bit of time off. I thought, you beauty. Yeah, well, I was having a crack. I was having a crack, David. And what happened? Well, I was really primed for this theological goodness, just going to get it straight in the veins. And then I realized like half the time he's just railing against these Catholics. And I go, man, you are answering all sorts of questions that no one is asking anymore. And I just found it, I, I just got a little bit muddled and I wasn't quite sure what's going on. Because every time we've got our scripture, but we're applying it to the culture. That's what Calvin was doing in his day. But there come problems, and this is my point in raising this, there come problems when we understand the scriptures quite well, but we actually miss a trick when it comes to reading the culture. We're reading an old culture, for example. Are there things that you look around as you see Christians engaging with culture, whether that be through churches or through schools, and you go, yep, you've understood the scriptures really well, but I think you're actually, you're using a playbook that is completely out of date and you're worse off for it. Do you see that? Yeah, very much so. Uh, great question, Paul. And it's a, it's a, I want to, again, nuance your question slightly more. Um, uh, Jesus comes in the flesh. And so um, the gospel and the truth and um, the church is always incarnated. And so there's a great contrast here with Islam, right? So if you pray as a Muslim, you have to point towards Mecca. And the scriptures are really supposed to be read in Arabic, and so the concept there is that somehow God more speaks Arabic and is more over in Mecca than what he is wherever you are. That is not the gospel, right? Jesus comes as a tabernacle is the New Testament Greek word, and it's a movable thing, right? And so did we have the gospel right in Christendom? I want to say actually what we had was a way of reading the scriptures that fitted the 1600s through to the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And that was a great fit. It wasn't the entire gospel. If you were an Asian and you turned up to a Western church in the 1960s, you would have said, where's on a shame, mm -hmm. right? If you're an African and you turned up to a Western church in the 1960s, you would have said, where is this sense that somehow Satan and Jesus are in this great power showdown at the cross? And if you choose to get behind the wrong power, if you choose to trade in bribery and manipulation and lies, like Judas does, well, then you're going to end up realizing you've bet the wrong horse, right? Mm. Like, so um, uh, did we have 
the entire gospel right in the Reformation through to the 2000s, we had a great version that fitted our culture, which allowed us to have a dialogue with our culture. We've got a problem in that our evangelistic and discipleship tools were written for the 1960s and before. Mm. And so we now need to ask ourselves, what are the yearnings of this culture? What are the assumptions of this culture? And, and I'll give you a, a kind of a quick case in point. One Christian school asked me to lead a devotion for their staff on spirituality that thrives. And I said to the, to the teachers, I said, what do you think a school kid hears when you use that word thrives? Because it's got post-Christendom assumptions built into that word, right? Mm. And the assumptions are, I'm like a plant and inside of me, I have all the resources I need to be able to grow naturally. All I need is access to the right resources and I can thrive and flourish and become the best version of me. And, and God ends up being something like a gardener who runs around throwing out manure, <laughs> fertilizer. Yeah. You know, so actually it's a me-centric term in the ears of Gen Z kids in high school. Yeah. And so you're trying to explain a biblical concept, but actually you've got to appreciate the way that uh, the next generation has imbibed the post-Christian worldview and they refract what we say. Mm. So what you're saying is that we can be using a whole raft of different uh, terminology and it's leaving our head with us having a very clear idea of what it means and it's entering the head of the student in our class with a very different idea of what it means. Absolutely. Um, and look, we've all experienced that. Um, and I've got to say, as preachers, you have it in spades. Sometimes <laughs> you walk out of a sermon and one person says, I loved it when you said that. And the next person says, I loved it when you said the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and, and there's actually PhD research into why and how this happens. And at a changeover of worldview, this is happening on steroids. And we've got to be very conscious of what's going on. There's uh, a man in the Christian education movement, a bloke called Rod Thompson, and he's uh, a great hero of this movement. And one of the things that he says is if we underestimate the degree to which our children are being discipled and catechized by the culture, we will then underestimate the force needed to disciple and catechize them into the Christian worldview. So my question for you then, David, is um, how thorough, I mean, it seems to be actually, we as Christians should almost be jealous of how well the secular, this secular post-Christian worldview is being taught and discipled to our young people because it's working so well. How is it coming in? So if you've got, you've got a parent and they've got their 13-year-old grade seven student, if that parent is asking you, well, how exactly is this post-Christian worldview getting to my son or daughter? I take them to church. I take them to a Christian school. Surely they're going to have the Christian worldview that we discussed. How would you say that that post-Christian worldview is actually being taught to that 13-year-old grade 7 student? The really obvious way would be social media. Um, and so I think there's a saying uh, I saw on TV recently, like your average Australian scrolls something like Mount Everest every single day, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, with their thumb on, on various social media forums. Uh, it's scary the amount of messaging that's kind of going in. And, and advertising people are not hicks, right? Th these guys are 
uh, and girls are psychologists, uh, the PhDs, trying to work out how to manipulate and influence and change your worldview. Um, so I think it's, it's there, it's in the concept of marketing. Um, I heard uh, someone suggest recently that the world is out discipling um, Christians. Uh, and I kind of, I thought to myself, yes and no. Um, to some extent, they've got a slight advantage in that Satan is always the father of lies. And I think the world always peddles idols, which are not complete lies, but they're actually half perversions of the truth. You know, so here's a classic example. Jesus says, you know, you've got to give up your life uh, uh, and, and you love God and others and then you will find life. Whereas our world says, actually, fill your own tank first and you can fill somebody else's second. Mm. So the message is still there. It's important to fill other people's tanks. But the half truth is you actually get there by filling your own tank first. Mm. And the problem is whoever feels like their tank is full enough. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Uh, almost never. And then we do something token for 15 minutes and we buy a beanie um, or we like a post and we feel good about ourselves and then we go back to being selfish for three months, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think um, the world is discipling world, but it's playing to our selfish egocentric tendencies. And that's easier to play to. Well, that's right. I mean, there's there's language in the New Testament of people sort of finding teachers for themselves to scratch their itching ears. You know, it's it's very easy to make someone believe a message that they really want to believe, isn't it? So if you've got a gospel out there or a perversion of the gospel, um, someone proclaiming they've got the way, and that's it, you've got to take it easy more often, look after yourself a bit better. It's going to be pretty easy to find an audience for that sort of thing. It is, but let me, again, just push back ever so slightly, if I may. Um, I preached last night on uh, Paul's sermon to the Areopagus in Acts 17. And um, God has placed every single one of us at this particular time and place so that we might seek him, and he's not far from any of us. So in some sense, I want to say it's pretty obvious to us, particularly older Christians, uh, who look at the world and, and we kind of say, we can see that God seems to be closer to the popular culture in Christendom than he is in post-Christendom. But I actually think we've got to learn to look for the new opportunities to see where there are gospel yearnings in the post-Christendom culture. And we've got to lean and lead into those spaces. Um, and, and it's not like somehow... Uh, the world is all bad and it's going backwards, right? I, I think um, in simple terms, God has a placed eternity in the heart of all of us. So whichever culture we're in, there's a sense in which um, a creature yearns for its creator and Satan spins a counter narrative of um, actually you can live for yourself and for God. Uh, that's the lie he tells Eve in the garden. Um, and, and every other lie he's told since is, is close to a spin on that. Um, so yes, there are new perversions that look like we've moved further from the gospel and from Christian truths. And yes, I want to say that's true. But at the same time, I want to say, I believe God is still close. And it's still possible to find ways from the here and the now to reach out and find God. It might be through loneliness. Um, it might be through the sense of actually... Uh, I can't make up my own value system. 
like that's like that's just too much weight and expectation on myself. Um, is there some objective standards that I can search and hope for? You're exactly right, and it's a well-known truth that the gospel affirms but also rebukes different parts of different cultures. And that's where our own cultural blinders can come in here because we see quite clearly the different parts of, um, perhaps if you're existing within a Christian worldview, you're looking at the post-Christian worldview, well, it's very clear to see where they've gone down the road and made a meal of it and, and got it wrong. Um, but then again, there would be parts of the sort of 1960s back to the 1600s, which would equally be rebuked by the Christian worldview, a, a true thoroughgoing Christian worldview. There's no doubt about that. Every culture, when seen through the lens of the gospel, has certain parts affirmed and certain parts rebuked. Yeah, here's something that kind of unsettles me, right? There's less war since 1970. Okay. And who was fighting in the 1670? The French and the English were constantly fighting. Uh, and, and so... It was greed, it was power hungriness, all during the era of Christendom. Mm. And somehow in post-Christendom, there's less wars. I'd like to think there were less wars in Christendom, mm. but sadly, history doesn't tell it that way. Yeah, and it's, it would be interesting to tease out the amount of factors that were at play there. I mean, with today's sort of global economic interdependence, people seem to have quite a vested financial interest in keeping all wars at the, sort of not escalating past the odd tariff here and there. Yeah, battlefields are rarely guns and tanks anymore, right? I mean, the Ukraine is exception, but yeah, economic suppression is, is a phenomena. Yeah. So you mentioned before, as you're saying, this, um, this culture that we have now will have certain parts that the gospel is affirming. The people these days will have certain things on their hearts which uh, is, are actually going to point them towards Christ. I'm interested to press into what exactly that is because we as Christian teachers, we're dealing with young people every day. And if it is, as you say, that they're being really sort of well-discipled, well-catechized by the post-Christian worldview, well, we, we could sit and bemoan and light our hair on fire and, and chuck all our toys out of the pram and say, well, this sucks, let's go back, but we can't go back. So then how would you equip Christian teachers to look into this present culture and say, well, this is the part that the gospel is affirming, and here is how, how I'm going to enter into a conversation with this young person. What would you say to those Christian teachers? Uh, I would begin by listening and listening to the young person and the yearnings of their culture. Now, I think you're going to very find, quickly find some patterns, um, like loneliness will be one, um, forgiveness will be another. I think in a cancel culture, um, forgiveness for uh, anything other than a kind of a minor indiscretion, um, um, the, a, a stable identity that isn't fluid. I think these things will come, right? But I would begin by listening and then working out how does the gospel show that actually you can't have that yearning in quite the way that you're searching for it because you've actually sort of bought the half lie. Um, but in another way, actually, Jesus offers you a more fuller, richer version of that um, of that yearning, of that part of the God-human interaction, the grand narratives of history. And somehow in 
Christ, you can find your life by giving it up. Um, and, and there is life to the full on the other side. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a dialogue. Let them speak, hear their yearnings, uh, affirm what you can, validate the valid, um, but then actually maybe pick some holes in some of the misconceptions um, and, and point out actually how that doesn't quite work like you're imagining it does, but it works better in Jesus. Um, how does this fit? That's expert advice, especially seeing your book. You're saying that a key pillar of the post-Christian worldview is that I'm an expert on me. And so perhaps then a lot of the pre-packaged ways of doing evangelism, say way of the master, you know, um, have you sinned? Have you lied? Have you had a lustful thought? You know, therefore you're guilty. All, all these pre-packaged ways, they, they might actually be falling at the first hurdle. Because you've got a person who, whether they're right or wrong, they believe deep down that you don't know a, a thing about them if you haven't talked to them. You know, if they, if they are special and individual and unique, they're going, well, why, why are you just giving me this spiel? Why are you reading from the script with me? So there's a sense in which you're failing to even get the most fundamental level of buy-in. So we're asking the question of them, asking to hear what's going on with them. And then you're saying... What we should be understanding as Christian teachers is that a lot of the yearnings of the heart are right, that these that these people are having, the young people in our classrooms, a lot of their most basic longings are right, and where they're mincing it, where they're getting it wrong, is actually in the application. So we're wanting to say, it's great that you have a desire for community, perhaps that's not going to be satisfied online, or it's great that you have a desire for identity, you're probably not going to be able to make it for yourself. So we're validating, as you said, the valid, the longing of the heart, but then we're actually pointing them in a better direction when it comes to the satisfaction of that desire. Absolutely. Um, a, a quick uh, snapshot of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, Jews um, look for signs, signs of power. Greeks look for wisdom. He's listened and heard to what they're looking for. And then what it sounds like he says is, I don't care for either of those. I'm simply preaching Christ crucified. But in the very next verse, he says, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. So uh, in some sense, he actually highlights the very dimension of God uh, that is what they're yearning for. He doesn't say, Christ, the forgiveness mm. or Christ, the person who deals with God's anger. You would expect that they were somehow more core themes of the gospel, but he picks the ones that fits the yearning of the first century culture. Now, you mentioned before, and you go into detail in your book about this, that Western Christians view the gospel through a guilt and innocent lens. Now, the reason I ask you this, uh, David, is because our Christian schools are growing, and they're growing a lot, and you need only look at the... Uh, immigration statistics of Australia to know that um, where our, our nation is becoming very multicultural, yeah. our Christian schools are becoming very multicultural. So it's quite common to have Muslims knock at the door of the Christian school, to have uh, Baha'i, to have uh, Buddhists, to have all, simply because there's a respect in the Christian school for religion, which I, I think that's um, a real feather in our cap. I'm impressed by that. They say, look, you, you guys, you understand faith and you respect faith. Now, hopefully we're able to take all those families on a journey from there and point them to Jesus. But the 
payload of that is that we've got more cultures in our classroom than ever before. You know, Christ in Matthew 28 says, go and disciple the nations. Well, interestingly enough, the nations have come to our classroom. So we as a Christian teacher, we're standing there going, all right, well, I've got five different cultures. I've got five different religions here. We might get stuck in the guilt, innocence rut. So what are some other frameworks, some some other sort of polarities which we might view the gospel through so as to best reach those people who have come into our classroom? Yeah, I had so much fun when I was first getting my head around this stuff, right? So the one we will most obviously know is honor shame. But let's just kind of play with that for just a quick minute. Um, So in the Garden of Eden, we're used to reading condemnation, right? So they disobeyed God, therefore they felt guilty, therefore they went and hid, right? And that's our Western way of reading the narrative, and it's all in there. But somehow there's these layers to the Genesis narrative that other cultures get quicker than, more quickly than we do. Mm. So Adam and Eve feel naked and ashamed, and they go and hide. And God not only offers ultimately forgiveness in Jesus, but he actually offers clothing to cover their nakedness. And that's his way of kind of saying, we can have a relationship that isn't as unencumbered as what it was inside the garden, but I'm not going to totally shun you and have no relationship with you outside of the garden. There's some insights of the gospel I never got taught at college, but that's beautiful. And an Asian person is going to go, of course that's what it says. What do you think it meant? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and now I'll do an African one, a power fear one about the cross, right? Uh, so um, what's going on in, uh, in the last week narrative uh, is, is two competing stories about how power works and who's going to win. And so what Satan is doing is he's saying, if you lie, if you manipulate, if you have your own army, if you can tell half-truths to the people who are in power, if you can bribe, if you can pay 30 pieces of silver, right? this narrative wins the day, right? And it's a, um, it's a manipulative, power-hungry, it plays to people's egos, right? And Jesus actually says, put the sword away. Um, you know, that's, that's not what my kingdom is of. Um, I, I could call down 30 legions of angels. I'm not looking for suffering. But um, God, what, whatever your will is, do that. And then in Philippians, um, Christ lays down his life. That's the most powerful action. And then the response of that actually is that God honors him. Mm-hmm. And so an African is going to hear that and go, yeah, of course that's what the gospel is about. Right? <laughs> yeah. But intuitively, that's not how we read the cross story. Mm. So there are these other cultures that have insights into the scripture because it's just this multifaceted diamond mm. um, that we've tended to read through an um, guilt-innocence uh, lens. But... Boy, there's just layers of depth when you can kind of get your head around some of these other cultures and have fun with that in your classrooms. And your Western kids will be blessed by the insights of their multicultural uh, fellow students. Let me, uh, we'll touch on this final topic and then we'll talk a little bit about your book and where people can go to get themselves a copy. 
Many Christians find themselves quite pessimistic about Christianity in the world. Now, that's not where I'm at. If you were to sort of talk about the three big eschatological views, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, I'm pretty firmly, just between you and I, David, I haven't told this to the podcast yet, I'm pretty firmly in the postmillennial camp. I'm very, very optimistic for the cause of the gospel in the world and the, the visible marching forth of the kingdom of Christ. Um, it's, it gets very easy for us to get down about Christianity because we see Christendom crumble around us. And you, you make an irrefutable case in your book. That, that is happening, right? The West isn't what it was. Uh, it has strayed from what it was. And one might even argue when it was uh, sort of uh, pre-post-Christendom, when it was Christendom itself, even then it wasn't that good. We heard some great stuff, though in our Year 7 Christian Studies class, where we study global Christianity, where we found out there are more Anglicans, so you're, you're an Anglican yourself, there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are people in England. Yeah. And we also found out that South America is going Protestant faster than Europe was in the Reformation. Yeah. So uh, would, would, is that a caution you would add to your average Western Christian that, yes, it's perhaps not going that well for us here, but if you cast your eyes further afield, you will still see God doing magnificent things with his gospel throughout the world. The West has this um, West-centric way of interpreting what's going on in the universe. You know? And you, you see this in the same-sex marriage debate where we just can't imagine why anybody else in the world would be homophobic anymore, right? But, you know, whenever there's like um, a soccer World Cup on in the Middle East, <laughs> suddenly we discover there are, <laughs> right? And it's not so simple as to kind of virtue signal and they're all going to go, oh, why did we think that? Mm. Um, so, yes, the West um, is quite uh, self-referential. We just, we think if we've eaten um, a kebab, we, we understand the Middle East, right? <laughs> Some, somehow you, you, you watch Channel 33 and you eat a bit of their food and you've got what another culture's on about, <laughs> right? And that is just so shallow. If you ate some olibolin, I wouldn't think you understood what it meant to be Dutch, yeah. right? It's, it's, you know, not even close. Um, so, uh, yes, I think there's kind of, much more going on overseas. But yes, Western Christendom is struggling. Uh, so, or Western Christianity. So here's a stat hot off the press I found out. Um, since 20, 2000 to 2020, so in 20 years, mm. 17 countries or 18 countries uh, shrank in percentage terms, Christianity shrank, by more than 5%, mm. right? 16 of the 17 were Western countries, Yeah. right? So absolutely, Western countries are struggling. This has happened before. The church got smashed in the Eastern Empire in the 1300s. Yeah. Um, but the gospel has been growing, uh, and at the moment, Christianity globally is growing, and you've highlighted some of the places, um, and, and there are others. Uh, and so, uh, yes, is it tough in our backyard? Absolutely. But, um, you know, am I depressed or overwhelmed? God is still God. Um, and, uh, you know, Jesus is still the only hope. Um, and so do I wish some days I was running a church in the 1960s? Privately, I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm not. 
God's called you and me to be Christians in the West in the 2020s. And, and that's our task. And, and we're following him and he's going to equip us. Exactly right. Christ, Christ is still on the throne and he will make us able. The Great Commission will be successful. Christ will be honoured. Um, I don't know about your post-millennialism. <laughs> Not many do. But we just need to go back to the heyday of Christendom and many people will agree with me there. You're now, right. Edwards, Edwards, yes. At the time of the Industrial Revolution, where there's growth in technology, there's growth in science, there's growth in medicine. Um, the intellectuals of the day are arguing, see what happens when we throw off religion. But the Christians of the day are arguing the kingdom is breaking in and that's when we have the first great revival. Yeah. So you're right. That's right. I, people often have a hard time getting on board with post-millennialism, this idea that we're getting better and better and better. Um, and the two quick things I say to them is, hey, you're looking too granular. Take it in 500-year chunks, and we're actually doing pretty well. B, next time you go to the dentist, just realise how far we've come. Do you realise they give you about half a bottle of whiskey 250 years ago? Get the pliers out and pull it from your head. Paul, I'm hearing you want to start writing a post-millennial book. <laughs> so let's, um, let's have a think about your book here, David. I've, I've read it. It's fantastic. I really appreciate the fact that you took great pains to, at the end of the chapters, make things really clear in dot point form. So you've, you've really gone into depth in your chapters, but you've also given really clear uh, dot points. As a teacher, someone who understands pedagogy and how people learn, I just think, well done. I do that to differentiate for my students. And you've actually made our lives easier by doing that too. And I'm guessing that as a parent, as a teacher, you're going to want to go back to that one-page dot summary and you're going to want to go, what does my kid think again? Why is that student talking like that? Oh, that's right. Um, so yeah, Because uh, so quickly we default back to our old assumptions uh, and changing mindsets is not this flip that just happens overnight. Yeah, that's exactly right. So your book is full of good insights, A. B, it's full of good pedagogy. So hey, I reckon we could maybe still make a teacher out of you yet. There's still plenty of time, still plenty of time. Now let's, let's have a think. Where can people get a copy of this book, David? You can get it at, say, Reformers or Kurong, but here's a deal uh, just for your podcast. Um, if you go to Whipf and Stock, so that's the publishers who actually publish it, and you type in BCAC. Being Christian after Christian, BCAC 40, you'll get 40% off. Well, that, that's, that's quite the haircut. So we're very appreciative of that. I'll make sure I include those details in the show notes of this podcast so that people are able to go to that fine institution and get themselves a great little discount on the book. Well, David, it has been an absolute treat talking with you. Before we wrap up, is there Anything else you want to add? Is there anything you think we've skipped over or a bottom line you want to run under something? Um, look, I'll be at the GRIT conference um, for um, CEN movement. Um, so I'll get to meet some of you again. So come up and say hello. Um, and uh, yeah, if I can be of assistance to your school or your movement, let's have a conversation. So Being Christian After Christendom is David Rietfeld's book. David, thank you so much for joining me on the Christian Education Podcast today. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul.